0: Turn to Exodus 25. Exodus 25. And while you're finding that text, I'll read to you from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question number 46 asks, "What is required in the first commandment?" The answer, "The first commandment requireth, requireth us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God." and here's the key, and to worship and glorify Him accordingly. That's where we get in trouble, is that word accordingly, because we don't always know what that is. And I believe that in our generation, we've been so bombarded by our culture and by deviant forms of Christianity that now it's rare to have in homes, for example, fathers teaching their children to be sober and ready and alert to worship God. That worship is now has become something so casual that we just wander into it. It's rare now to have an entire church body coming together with a sense of the holy, with a sense of the divine, the sense of the the wonder of God. And so how do we get that back? Well, it takes really a return all the way back to the first ultra-detailed description and instruction about worship given by God, to see that the, the heart of worship is not about having a kumbaya emotional experience, but it is of giving the Creator of the universe that which is due to Him, that which is owed to Him, the rightful praise and glory which inherently is His. That's what the heart of worship is. And so we'll let God's instruction to Israel instruct us God has now set apart Israel as a holy nation to Himself. They're the nation charged by God with showing God to a, to a sinful world. They're to demonstrate in microcosm what the kingdom of God can look like on earth when you have a God-centered culture. And ultimately, it will be through them that the Savior, Jesus Christ, will come. And through Christ, of course, the Abrahamic covenant promised to be a blessing to all nations will be fulfilled. And as Israel's sovereign heavenly king, as the true and living God, Israel is to be a nation of worshipers. That is how they are defined. They are a nation of worshipers. God has given them His covenant, the Ten Commandments. They have agreed to this covenant. Then God gave them the book of the covenant, the first set of laws by which the faithful and loyal Israelite can live out the Ten Commandments in day-to-day living. We saw the book of the covenant in chapters 21-23 to approximately. Moses has now ascended to Mount Sinai and he's going to receive instruction from God concerning Israel's holy worship. Now, I know that the text we're going to look at tonight can be challenging to us. They're 3,500 years removed from our context, a new covenant removed, and a church age removed from us. And so what we're going to see here concerning Israel's worship is something that we'll have to work to, to bridge our understanding of, of these principles that are timeless. We know we're not bound by the law of Moses. The, the application tonight is not for you to go home and make a high priest turban that says holy to the Lord. But there are principles in Israel's holy worship in which God reveals His overarching, never-changing ideas of how God is to be approached. That Just because we live in the 21st century, that doesn't change how God is to be approached. Uh, God doesn't walk around in in cutoffs and flip-flops and a tank top. God is still the same God that was on Mount Sinai 3,500 years ago. He's the same exact God. And so these chapters, while they don't give us specifics about some details of our own worship, they, they do tell us what our heart is to be. And so... I trust that this will inform your worship. And in fact, to to do this rather lengthy section, I just want to give you six key words to inform your worship, to direct your worship. The first key word is prostrate. Prostrate. This is an old-fashioned word because we don't think in those terms much anymore. I'll bet not one of you used the word prostrate today in any way. You didn't say, I tripped over my own feet and became prostrate on the ground. We use different words. We use words like, I fell down. But in the, in the Bible, the two most frequently used worship words, one in Hebrew, one in Greek, both mean to fall down, to come unto your face before the might and the majesty of God. It's the idea of bowing down. How is God going to get across to Israel, that the worship of Yahweh is to be reverent, deferential, awe-inspired, awestruck, prostrate? He's going to get this message across with their worship space, with their sacred space dedicated solely to meeting with God. God is speaking to Moses on the mountain. Exodus 25 verse one. The Lord said to Moses, "Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution." From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. This contribution was to be in the form of precious metals, fine linens, animal skins, wood, oil, spices, and precious stones. If you recall, Israel came out of Egypt with great wealth, and they would have the chance to trade for more materials later on in their journey as well. We know that they weren't completely isolated, that they did come in contact with other peoples. Why is this Contribution being taken, chapter 25, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And then more or less, God starts in the very middle of the tabernacle and works his way out. He starts with the most important piece, the Ark of the Covenant. In verses 10 through 22, he describes this Ark. It's a wooden ark about four feet long and two feet wide. It's overlaid with pure gold inside and out, so it would be quite heavy. The ark was to have rings put on it for carrying with poles since the ark was never to be touched. On the ark would be the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the lid of sorts, and on the mercy seat were the cherubim, the angels, one on either side, spreading their wings over this mercy seat. So what is this? What what is this Ark of the Covenant? This is the holy place from which God would meet with humanity. Chapter 25, look with me at verse 21. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the Ark, and in the Ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel." The Ark would contain the Ten Commandments, possibly even the Book of the Covenant as well. The Mercy Seat would be the place blood is sprinkled on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. And we see here these cherubim, these angels, and these are important. Interestingly, apparently the Hebrews had a conception for what cherubim looked like, because you notice there's no instruction on what they're to look like. They, they knew. They are the spiritual gatekeepers, the guardians And the cherubim appear wherever the seat of God's presence appears. We see cherubim in the Garden of Eden. We see cherubim in the heavenly vision of Ezekiel 1. We see cherubim in the heavenly vision of Revelation 4. And the presence of the cherubim always tells us something. It tells us where the throne of God is. And so these two golden cherubim on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant This is symbolizing that this is the throne of God on earth. This is the symbol of the theocracy, a chosen nation with God as their king. And you remember that in the Garden of Eden, a pre-fall, Adam and Eve met with God and they communed directly with God. And after the fall, the way to God was banned. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And why couldn't they get in? Because there were cherubim guarding the way to God and keeping them from Him. And so the ark was to be placed in the most holy place, the holy of holies, the innermost room that would be constructed as laid out in the next chapter. Outside the most holy place, there was to be a table for bread. This table was also to be overlaid with pure gold and would have rings for carrying with poles because it's holy. And this would be a major part of their worship routine. Look with me at chapter 25, verse 30. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Meaning, any day that the tabernacle is set up, fresh bread is to be brought out and brought to the table. And this is the bread of the presence, symbolizing that God is with them. This is the God with us of the Old Testament. Uh, The bread, by the way, was not symbolically to feed God as pagan worshipers would do with their gods. God doesn't need anything from them. In fact, it was just the opposite. This is the symbol of God nourishing them. This is the symbol of God's provision and care for them. And in fact, this would literally be lived out soon when bread would begin raining down from heaven. The care and the nourishment of God, the heavenly manna to provide their sustenance. Now, Israel wouldn't see this except in retrospect. But in the bread of the presence, God with them, the provider of all that they need, our Lord Jesus Christ, as you recall, claimed the title of being the bread from heaven. In fact, to make his point, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the presence of God, fed 5,000 men plus their wives and children this miraculous bread, and then he preached a sermon to them, and he opened his sermon by saying, in John six thirty two, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so the average Israelite, knowing about the bread of the presence, they're not going to say, oh, of course, this means Jesus Christ in the future. They, they don't understand that yet. But looking back through the lens of the New Testament, we do. We, we get that. Still outside the most holy place, in the, the holy place, the outer room, along with the table of the bread of the presence. Chapter 25, verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. This design is the classic menorah that we're familiar with. A golden lampstand with seven branches for oil lamps of some sort, likely ceramic lamps. It, this description doesn't tell us how big it is, but most scholars believe it's, it's taller than a man, that it's big, and it would light up a room quite well. This is an ornate menorah with the lamp holders shaped like al- almond blossoms made of pure gold the menorah to this day is still one of the best-known symbols of Judaism, right? You see that, you think about the Jews. Now, Moses isn't told the significance of the lampstand, but given that the tent design of the, the holy place and the most holy place within it would render it completely dark, obviously the lampstand was the light to light the way into the holy place and the most holy place. And again, the Israelites wouldn't see this except with the benefit of future revelation. But the best parallel to this lampstand that we have in the Bible is the scene of the heavenly throne room in Revelation chapter 4, in which we see before the throne of God, quote, seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits, meaning the sevenfold or the perfect spirit of God. And Later on in the same scene, we see Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God as well. So in the most holy place and in the holy place, so far we've seen the throne of God with angels all around, the bread of the presence, and the sevenfold lampstand. The, the holy place and the most holy place is an earthly representation of what? Of the heavenly throne room in which is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us where all these tabernacle things, these little designs, where they originated. This wasn't God saying, you know, I think I'll, I'll think up something new. Hebrews 9.23, the author calls them copies of the heavenly things. This was a little earthly model of what is actually in heaven. And he celebrates our salvation under the new covenant, the new covenant in Christ. Hebrews 9.24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so in in very shadowed and veiled form, we have the triune God represented in the holy place, in the most holy place. Now, it's noteworthy that when these instructions are given to Moses, Moses will be in a long period, 40 days, of intense communion with God, communicating the great reverence and awe with which worship is to be approached. It was a time to revere God, to ascribe greatness to Him. And God set the tone right away, by the way. We read this verse briefly, Exodus 9.25. This We could call this the key to this whole section, exactly as I show you. That's how worship is to be. Exactly as I show you. There's only one way to approach God, the way He has prescribed. Under the New Covenant, the one way we may approach God is through Christ, and the one institution in which we may approach God is the church. There are no grounds for purely private worship to the exclusion of the church. That's not an option. There are no grounds for doing foolish and silly things in the name of worship. If we ever have a juggler on this platform, I will take him out personally because that, we're not here to be foolish and silly. We're here to ascribe glory to God. There's no grounds for making worship man-centered. There's no grounds for making worship convenient. And there's no grounds for making worship marketable. It is to be holy before God. The Ark of the Covenant alone tells us of the prostrate attitude we're to have in worship. The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God on earth, and yet they couldn't touch it. It's guarded against direct contact. It's isolated from the people in the most holy place. It was unseen behind the veil that would be put up. The average person never saw the Ark of the Covenant in his whole entire lifetime. God is unapproachable by sinful mortals unless atonement is made. By the way, the tabernacle has something missing that every other pagan temple in the world had. That is an image of the God to whom it was dedicated. There's no image of God. Instead, what is there? There's an empty throne. An empty throne, but interestingly, the lack of an image puts all the focus and on the glory on God and God alone. And how must you come to God then? You must come to Him by faith and not by sight. And of course, we know that one day the throne will not be empty. It will be occupied on earth by God in the flesh, the Son of God. So think about what you can do to foster a prostrate spirit before the Lord. Both Old and New Testaments have examples of worshipers who died before the Lord because their worship was haughty. And arrogant. Let me give you another key word to inform your worship. Penitent. Penitent. This is another word that seems old-fashioned to us. I doubt any of you have used the word penitent in the past year. Except maybe if you're a parent to your child. You need to be more penitent. It means remorseful. It means regretful. It means contrite. We don't generally think about coming to church in penitence. We don't have our greeters at the front door saying, hey, wipe that smile off your face before you walk in here, right? But there's a sense in which we are to be remorseful, regretful, and contrite. Chapter 26 outlines in detail the construction and design of the tabernacle. It includes a wealth of materials such as fine twined linen, blue, purple, scarlet, yarns, gold, goat's hair, bronze, tanned ram skins, acacia wood, silver, and some other materials. The the tabernacle was to be the portable worship center to go wherever the Lord led Israel. It consisted of a tall outside fabric curtain stretched across a wooden frame to form a rectangular courtyard. And as you entered the entrance curtain, toward the back of the courtyard was a much taller frame with fine fabric curtains stretched around it to form a, a long rectangular room which was then covered by four different fabrics the the outside fabric was the least fine it was the roughest and the inside one was the most fine the most expensive the first part of this long room was the holy place this is where the bread of the presence and the lampstand were and two-thirds of the way back was a, a fine and heavy veil leading into the most holy place in which was the ark of the covenant Sometimes in the Old Testament, this entire tent, or perhaps just the holy place, that first foyer area, so to speak, is called the tent of meeting. So those two are interchangeable terms. And remember the cherubim of the ark? There are more of them. The veil into the most holy place was to be made of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine twisted linen, and it was to have cherubim embroidered right into it. This veil was to be hung on four gold-plated pillars and set into four silver bases. And you didn't just wander freestyle into the holy place or the most holy place. In fact, no one but the priests did so. And to approach God, sin had to be dealt with. And so the centerpiece, the, the very crux, the middle of worship, the human worship of God had to be made. Chapter 27, verse 1, You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. This is the centerpiece of human worship, because no man can approach God without sacrifice for sin. This bronze altar had four horn-like projections at each corner. They didn't serve a particular function. Sacrifices weren't tied to it. They weren't killed on the altar. Sacrifice was made next to the altar, and the animal was then cut into pieces to be burned as an offering to the Lord. Now, I've already mentioned the court of the tabernacle, but the details for it begin in verse 9 of chapter 27. And we see the measurement for this outer court all the way in verse 18. Chapter twenty seven, verse eighteen, the length of the court, this is the, the fence fenced off area, the length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, and the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. So the entire tabernacle complex is more or less hundred and fifty feet long, seventy-five feet wide, with the while the tabernacle proper, that inner tent, that taller tent, is fifteen feet high. 15 feet wide and 45 feet long. And so it's not huge. It is portable, but it is not big. The the curtain making the courtyard was to be almost 8 feet tall. Just a little architectural note, by the way. Does God care about architecture? I think he does. This is the first dedicated worship structure on earth, and it's designed by God with a high ceiling and ornate fixtures appropriate to a high and a lofty and a majestic God. God didn't say, oh, I'll just meet with you anywhere. He said, I will only meet with you here. In fact, just the curtain to walk into the courtyard, this was no ordinary curtain either. Chapter 27, back in verse 16. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. So you have a 30-foot-long curtain that would be a spectacular piece of work of all these different colors, very different than the more plain curtain forming the entire courtyard. So what does it mean to be penitent? What does that mean? Well, the worshiper, the, the, the tabernacle would be in the center of the camp. The worshiper might come from his camp, and he could walk anywhere around the tabernacle. And he could walk around the plain linen wall But the entrance curtain was distinctive. It was woven in this blue, purple, and scarlet and white. The curtain marked the one way that the sinner could gain access to God. And so, if you entered the entrance curtain, immediately, right in front of you, you're confronted with something. You're confronted with the altar. That as you walk in, immediately there must be death, there must be sacrifice, there must be blood. For you to be made right before the Lord and you're reminded immediately that worship requires sacrifice because you are unholy and God is holy. I wonder how often we remember that for the privilege of our fellowship with God, there is blood on our front door. To walk into these walls, so to speak, there is blood. That the blood of Jesus Christ, the ultimate permanent sacrifice for sin, had to be spilled and received by faith. Worship is not free. I'll put it this way. There might be guests in our church building, but there's no such thing as a guest in the church. Only those who have acknowledged and repented of sin and humbly asked God to apply Christ's payment for sin to them can be a true worshiper. We, in and of ourselves, have no right whatsoever to approach God. It is only through Christ, and so there you are. You stand in the entrance. You've gone in this beautiful curtain. You think I'm in, and you're stopped immediately by the altar. There must be blood. There must be death, and you're you're stopped. Why is this? Well, it's to teach us that worship is prostrate, penitent, and our third key word: worship is priestly. Worship is priestly. This is as far as you could go. Only the priests were allowed into the holy place. And only the high priest was allowed into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And now we get as much or more detail in chapter 28 for the high priestly garments as we get for the tabernacle itself. 43 verses of description. And if you read through it, it can be a little confusing because there's some elements we're not familiar with. But basically... The high priest was to wear a lower, the lowest layer was a linen undergarment from waist to thighs. This was to, to cover anything that would be uh, unseemly to the Lord. Above that tunic was a, a large, above that garment rather was a, a linen tunic, kind of like a long shirt. And then over that was a large blue robe. It was fringed with decorative embroidery and it had bells on it. Now, what were the bells for? Well, wearing bells would be similar to knocking before entering. It was a sign of respect that you don't just walk unannounced into the presence of God. Over this was the ephod. The ephod was like an apron, and it had two shoulder pieces to hold it on. The shoulder pieces were inscribed with the names of the tribes of Israel, and this indicated the representative nature of the high priest. That As the high priest went in, so did Israel. Attached to this ephod, this apron-like garment was a woven belt. And attached to the ephod by pieces of golden chain was a breast piece that was was kind of a pouch. And on the breast piece were 12 precious stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, the representative nature of the high priest. Inside the pouch of the breast piece were the urim and thummim, the sacred stones used for casting lots at God's direction. Numbers 27 describes this. No one knows what those words mean, and no one knows precisely how it worked. But what it does tell us is that they were to follow God's direction alone. On his head, the high priest wore a headpiece, a a turban or a, a headdress of some sort with a golden emblem on it saying, Holy to the Lord, Holy to Yahweh. Aaron, the brother of Moses, he had to be made holy in order to set him apart. He was forgiven. He had to be pure in order to approach God on behalf of the people. And it was, as it were, for God to read that as Aaron walks in, the first thing God would see from a human perspective is holy to Yahweh, meaning don't kill him. That's what it meant. Aaron was consecrated to meet with God. Now, why all this attention to detail? Why the big deal about how the, priest is, the high priest is to be dressed? Chapter 28, verse 2 tells us, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. These were garments for no other purpose. They were sacred. They were holy. Because he was doing something that was sacred, something that was holy. Holy. The end of chapter 28 describes the lesser garments for Aaron's sons, the priests before the Lord, but not the high priest. But just because he had the correct clothing didn't mean Aaron was ready to meet with the Lord. That was just step number one. In chapter 29, the priests must be consecrated, set apart. This involved an offering of special bread, the sacrifice of a bull, and the sacrifice of two rams. Uh, much more sacrifice for sin than it was offered for the regular Israelite. And here's the key to this consecration. Chapter 29, verse 10. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. What is this? To minister before the Lord, their sin had to symbolically be transferred to a sacrificial substitute. They could not go before the Lord until their sin had been dealt with. And now, properly clothed and consecrated to God, the high priest and the priest could act as mediators between Israel and God. Now, remember this. The worshiper with his sacrifice finds the entrance curtain and as he comes in, he's immediately confronted by the altar. His animal will be sacrificed and taken to be burned by the priests. Across the courtyard... Looking across, the the worshiper can see the outer coverings of the tent of meeting, the, the holy place inside of which is the most holy place, the throne of God on earth, but that's as far as he can go. That's it. Only the priest can enter the holy place on the worshiper's behalf, and only the high priest can enter the most holy place on the worshiper's behalf. The average worshiper never saw the splendor of the holy place, never saw the angels embroidered on the veil into the most holy place, they never saw the glittering gold. They never saw the silver bases. They never saw the beautiful lamplight. They knew about it, but they were cut off from direct access to God's glory because of sin. They needed a representative, someone who could go sin-free. Only in his imagination could he dream of entering into the holy place, which would have been visually stunning, Illumined by this giant golden lamp of the golden menorah. As your eyes adjusted, because it would have been very dark in there, the fine linen interior tent with the colorful tapestry of cherubim is all around you. It would have suggested entry into God's domain, into heaven itself. The, the tent frames were of gold, they would have been brightly reflecting the lamplight. It was meant to be an earthly reflection of the outer chamber of God's heavenly abode, but sin kept him out. And you think about this, I said that the tabernacle wasn't that big. If you could, the worshiper could literally walk from the desert wilderness through the entrance gate and in a matter of a few steps be all the way into the Holy of Holies. But he wasn't allowed in. He wasn't allowed in. Well, Hebrews 9 tells us, that now Christ has entered on our behalf as our high priest, clothed in priestly garments. What garments? The garments of his own righteousness. And he has offered the sacrifice of himself. Listen, when Christ died on the cross and the veil was, uh, to the most holy place was torn from top to bottom, access to God is now secured. And now we dream of the real most holy place. Hebrews 9 says that the one on earth was just a model, just a copy. We dream of the real most holy place because we're going there. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest, we will go join him because of that torn veil, because of the death of Christ. So remember that your worship is priestly, that you have a mediator, even even now keeping your place secure in heaven. He's keeping it secure There's a fourth concept to inform and dictate your worship. We'll call this concept perpetual. Perpetual. Listen to the continuous worship of God's people at the end of chapter 29. In fact, uh, and we'll start in verse 38. But verses 42 through 46 consist of a poem. It has several elements of Hebrew poetry to it. It's meant to be poetic. It's meant to be joyful. But chapter 29, we'll begin in verse 38. This is the perpetual worship. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer it with a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning for a pleasing aroma." a food offering to the Lord. And here's the poem. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God's people are offered continual, perpetual communion with God and they need continual, perpetual communion with God. It it conveys a mood of positiveness, of joy, of celebration. Verse 46, They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord their God. This is joy filled. This is happy. The daily sacrifice brought you into daily right standing with God, that He was always with you. It wasn't meant to be burdensome, it was a privilege. Now, the new covenant is better, much better, because of the once for all sacrifice of Christ. But we shouldn't look down on the old covenant. The worship code of the law was a blessing from God in that constant communion with God was available by the faith of the worshiper who believed in the one true living God. And we need that constant communion. We need our worship to be perpetual, don't we? We don't worship God part-time. You need consistency in your singing of songs in your hearing of the preached word and your reading of scriptures in your gathering with God's people. We're built by God, by the way, to regularly gather in his name to invoke the memory of the, the sacrifice of Christ. Wouldn't it be weird if we said, well, this has been a great Sunday. We'll see you same time next year on this day. That, that just wouldn't feel right because we're built to gather together. God didn't reach out to us just for, the live, for us to live our lives basically silent to his presence. And consider this concerning the throne of God and perpetual worship Because of the work of Christ, the door to the Lord is never closed. The the veil was torn once, and it's always torn. It's always open. You're very familiar with this passage, I'm sure. Hebrews chapter 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, Let us then with confidence draw near to what? The throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen. The perpetual and continual nature of worship does not in any way minimize or diminish the need to be prostrate, penitent, and priestly in our access. Access to God doesn't excuse casualness with God. We have constant access, but that doesn't mean it's casual. It is constant, and yet it is also prostrate and penitent and priestly. But we do have access nonetheless. Let me give you a fifth key concept to inform and direct your worship. This one might seem obvious, but we'll call this one prayerful. Prayerful. God emphasizes this in the text beginning in chapter 30, but we have to dig a little bit to find it. Chapter 30 verse 1 You shall make an altar on which to burn incense you shall make it of acacia wood a cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth it shall be square and the two cubits shall be two cubits shall be its height its horns shall be of one piece with it you shall overlay it with pure gold its top and around its sides and its horns and you shall make a molding of gold around it so this is an altar for burning incense and it is overlaid with pure gold like the other furniture items, and this was to be located just in front of the veil of the Holy of Holies, right in front of it. Aaron, the high priest, was to burn incense on it each day, and he could only use the prescribed recipe for incense given later on in the chapter. Anything else would be considered unauthorized fire, as his sons would find out the hard way in Leviticus 10 when Nadab and Abihu get creative in their worship and die by the fire of the Lord. Now, we don't get a direct reason for the altar of incense, but looking at at all of Scripture in its broader scope, we can get some clues elsewhere. In Numbers chapter 16, incense are used as part of a plea for forgiveness after the rebellion of Korah. Forgiveness is begged for from God with incense. Psalm 141, verse 1, the psalmist asks God to accept his prayers as or like incense going up. The essential idea of offering incense was representative of sending up fragrance, fragrant sweetness to God and he accepts this as indication of his favor. In fact, in Leviticus 26.31, God warns of disaster if Israel rebels and he says that he would no longer receive their pleasing aromas, meaning I'm not hearing you anymore. In the book of Revelation, burning incense before God is said three times to represent the prayers of the saints. Chapter 5, one time. Chapter 8, twice. Now, in all of these cases, the burning of incense seems to represent God's people seeking after God's favor. It could be a plea for forgiveness, as in the rebellion of Korah. In number 16, it could be prayers for relief for persecuted believers and vindication by God as was the case in the book of Revelation. So this is an appeal for divine help, for divine favor, most obviously found how? In prayer. In fact, the location of the altar of incense is important. It's right at the entrance to the Holy of Holies, the prayers of God's people coming up to Him. Uh, do you ever pray and once in a while you you forget yourself and you, in a moment of lack of faith you picture the billions and trillions of light years between us and heaven and you think i'm going to be dead before my prayer ever gets there nothing's going to happen and you get that sense that that your prayers are just going into outer space and nothing's happening well here's the picture of your prayers it is like the altar of incense right at the throne of god right at the veil into the holy of holies the prayers of the saints and we're not just to pray as part of our worship In fact, prayer is so vitally connected to worship that really it's hard to distinguish one from the other. Certainly our attitude in prayer can be directed by what we've already seen. It is to be prostrate. It is to be penitent. It is to be priestly. We pray because of Christ. And it is to be perpetual. Pray at all times, as the Apostle Paul told us. As a matter of fact, this idea of incense being an appeal to for divine help and divine favor. This ought to be very exciting to you because the Lord apparently never forgets a prayer and he stores them up. If you think God isn't answering my prayers right now, it just means he's storing them up. Let me let me illustrate. There's a scene in heaven recorded in Revelation 8 in the real temple at the real altar of incense and being offered there are the prayers of persecuted and martyred saints of the great tribulation. And listen what happens to those prayers. Revelation 8, beginning in verse 3, "...and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth." And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The wicked on earth are receiving their just retribution from God because of the prayers of the saints. And in fact, symbolically here, the prayers of the saints become the weaponry by which God inflicts wrath upon them. That's exciting. That God collects your prayers and will answer them in spectacular fashion and right after this, Revelation 9 records horrific judgments on earth coming, by the way, only to unbelievers. So when you're prayerfulness, you're storing up answers for from God, maybe not in your timing, but certainly in His, worship is, at its essence, communication to God, first and foremost about God, glorifying His majesty, His work, His grace, and then in prayerful communication about all of life and thought and concerns going up to him as well. Have you considered this, that when you come into a place of worship, when you come into a time of worship, whether it's a small group that you're meeting at in a home or coming to our more formal worship service here, have you considered entering in prayer and in your heart saying, I'm I'm coming to meet with the living God. Would you be pleased with my worship? Would you be pleased with my attentiveness? Would you be pleased with my singing? Would you be pleased as I seek your face? Worship is informed and directed by being prostrate, penitent, priestly, perpetual, prayerful. One more key word, purity. Purity. Now, the oddest thing happens in chapter 30, verse 11, Right in the middle of God's instruction concerning worship, parachutes down this seemingly completely unrelated topic, instructions for a census tax. It's like the census tax gets down there and says, hey, guys, how's it going? Like, you don't really belong here. This doesn't seem right. So to help us establish the context for the census tax, we're going to move on for a moment and then I'll come back to it. In the courtyard of the tabernacle, there was to be another piece of furniture with a specific function. If you walked into the entrance curtain, you would first see the altar, and behind it, between the altar and the tent of meeting, you would see a bronze basin, a sink, so to speak. Chapter 30, verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which... Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generation. So the priests are to wash before and after performing all of their priestly duties because their hands touched the sacred things, and their feet walked on sacred ground. By the way, in chapter 28, in all of the ornate priestly garments, what was the one thing that was missing? There was nothing on their feet. The priests were apparently barefooted, likely for the same reason God insisted Moses be barefooted in Exodus 3, because the ground was holy because God was there. And so the priests were washing before the Lord continually. And I want you to know this a principle here. The priests have already been dressed properly. They have already been consecrated. Sacrifice has already been made for them. Sacrifice for sin is done. They're forgiven. They're clean. And yet they continue to wash. We have the same concept Jesus explained when he washed the disciples' feet. John 13, verse 10, Jesus said, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. But it's completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. Meaning that while your sin is paid for, you're still sinning. And you still need to deal with this sin before God, not for acceptance once again, but for purity before the Lord. This is the confession of sin of the true believer for the purpose of continued fellowship, for the purpose of, of purity before the Lord. Psalm 32, verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, continuing in the vein of purity, in chapter 30, beginning of verse 22, Moses, God gives Moses the recipes for the anointing oil and the incense. And you think, why, why do we have to have this exact recipe? Well, first of all, the purpose of anointing was to consecrate both people and things used in worship. And here's the key idea. Chapter 30, verse 32. The key idea. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. It's only for priests and only for this purpose. And similarly, God gives the recipe for the incense. In chapter 30, verse 37, And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. The lesson here is that items set aside for worship are not to be used for lesser purposes. Or to put it this way, worship is not to be mixed up with self-gratification. Worship is not for you to get something, although you do worship is for you to give something it's separate this speaks of the holiness of god in that people and things are to be purified to the lord here's an easy way to remember this a few generations past, when people didn't have a closet full of clothes to choose from a man had his work clothes and he had his church clothes and never shall the two meet And when you put on your church clothes, you are putting yourself into a mindset of worship. Still in the theme of purity, chapter 31 begins with a functional but important note. Chapter 31, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. Alongside him was a These were the men who would make all of these things. And so it wasn't just anyone who could make the items involved in worship. This was important enough that these men were to be given a special spiritual help from God, filled with the Spirit of God, as often happened in the Old Testament. The Spirit would move upon a man for a specified purpose for a specific period of time. How important is the purity of worship and even the items of worship? Here's how important it is. The first time in the Bible that a man is said to be filled with a Spirit is to make the things of worship. This is the first time. And still on the theme of purity, being set apart, being holy before the Lord God reiterates the Sabbath law. Chapter 31, verse 12, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Here's the key verse, verse 13. Verse 13 above all you shall keep my sabbaths the sabbath was a statement of trusting god instead of trusting self and effort and by the way sabbath was generally speaking observed at home it wasn't always a day for worship there were other special days set aside for worship and so the sabbath you're, you're at home, you're on your land, so to speak. And you can, you can look out your tent or later on in Israel, you can look out the window of your house, you can look out the door and you can see all the work that needs to be done, all the money you could be making, all the harvest that needs to happen. If only you worked that one more day and yet you stopped. You just stopped. You trusted the Lord for your provision You closed the door, you went back inside and you enjoyed being with your family and you let the Lord provide for you. And you proved your trust by taking a day off. Verse 17, this is the sign of God's covenant with Israel. It heralded the fact that God created heaven and earth in six days and rested on the seventh. Now we've already pointed out on other evenings that because Sabbath was the sign of the old covenant, this is the one of the 10 commandments that's not reiterated and commanded in the New Testament as part of the New Covenant. But that leaves us with a little conundrum here. What are we supposed to do with this little phrase in verse 17? It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. We don't know for certain, but here are a couple things we do know. The book of Isaiah, the minor prophets, Revelation 7, Revelation 12, Revelation 14 are full of promises concerning the future reinstitution of the nation of Israel after the Great Tribulation, a restoration of God's chosen ethnic people. We also know that Ezekiel 40-48 through 48 indicates that in similar fashion to the time of Moses, not identical, but similar fashion, sacrifices will then be reinstated. Not instead of the sacrifice of Christ, but apparently more so Israel could finally at long last enjoy the covenant blessings of obedience which they never really fully lived out the best theory is that these sacrifices will constitute something of a memorial to the sacrifice of christ and that's not something we're unfamiliar with we also have a memorial to the sacrifice of christ we celebrated that this morning and so we have a memorial as well we also know that in this new kingdom age in which messiah jesus is reigning on earth all the nations of the earth are to come to Jerusalem once a year to celebrate the newly reinstituted Feast of Booths. Zechariah 14. And apparently, at least for Israel, something else is going to be reinstituted. Isaiah sixty six twenty three, Speaking of this time from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. There is something in us that yearns for Sabbath. We're not under a Sabbath law. We're in the new, new covenant. But I believe Isaiah 66 teaches that it's coming back. Why? Because God said it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. Once again, they will be indicating their purity before the Lord by trusting in him. Now remember that odd little stranger that parachuted down the census tax? You know, what's that doing there back in chapter thirty. Verse 11, God says, when you take the census of the people of Israel, every person has to pay a price, a ransom for his life. In fact, verse 15 of chapter 30 uses very strong language. They're making atonement for their very lives. What does this have to do with purity and worship? This is actually extremely related to Sabbath law. Watch. There's no command... There's not even a recommendation to take a census. It doesn't say that if you look carefully at the text. Generally speaking, unless God commands a census as he would do during the wilderness wandering, the taking of a census as man's idea is a bad idea. When David took a census in 2 Samuel 24, this was a grievous sin against God, if you remember. It was done out of pride in numbers. Let's see how big my nation is. His son Solomon took those census numbers, Second Chronicles 2 and First Kings 4, and he used them to reorganize the nation in a way that blurred ancient tribal identities and even messed with, with ancient borders. The point was is that Israel was to find their identity not in their vast numbers, not in their vast wealth, not by counting heads and saying, look how big we are. They were to find their identity in Yahweh, that we are his chosen people. And so what is God doing here? He's not commanding them to take a census. He's saying, when you do it, if you decide to do it, God is making it a really, really, really careful decision to take a census because if the leadership does it, then everyone is taxed for it. And in fact, in this odd little census law, the word ransom is used once and atonement three times. In other words, if you take a census, you had better be certain it's done in humility and in purity and in reliance on God alone. Remember I said that it's related to Sabbath law? The Sabbath law says, I trust God. The census law says, I don't trust census, I trust God. I trust Him, not our numbers. They were to be pure in worship. Well, worship is informed and directed by being prostrate, penitent, priestly, perpetual, prayerful, and by the idea of purity. Jesus reiterated and affirmed the first commandment when he was on earth. Matthew fourteen: You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. What is required in the first commandment? The first commandment requireth us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify Him accordingly. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, You are never changing. You are always the same. You are not somehow more informal or less fearsome or less awe-inspiring now as You were than You were 3,500 years ago. The same God that appeared before Israel in thunder and lightning and smoke and fire and trumpet sound has appeared to us in the person of Jesus Christ, yet the same God, fully worthy of worship. And so, Lord, it is my prayer for each person here that we might reevaluate our own hearts and we might approach you every moment, every time we even enter into prayer, before a meal, before any time, any time we open our Bibles as individuals, anytime we gather even in a small group in a Bible study, and certainly when we gather as God's people for our formal times of worship to appear before you, I pray, Lord, that we would stop and take a moment to remember that there is blood on our front door that purchased our access. That there is an altar called a cross that had to bear our Savior so that we might come before the throne of grace with free access. I pray we would never forget that, that we would never forget the awe, the wonder, the fear that ought to accompany our worship of the holy, holy, holy God. We thank you and we praise you for this access all because of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.